Y'all, we appreciate Samuel Merritt University so much for continuing to help keep this podcast going. They want us to tell you about their new Advance Your Practice Scholarship. They're offering a $10,000 scholarship to anyone who enrolls in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. If you're interested in getting more information about the programs, you can visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's fnp.samuelmerritt.edu. And as always, we'll put that link on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Just getting back from the NurseCon cruise where we did the show live there. It was so much fun, but it is a little different from our normal format, but I loved it. It was so much fun. So I've got a couple of things before I introduce my guest host for this week that I just wanted to, to talk about. Number one, the Nurses March for Redonda Vaught is coming up on May the 13th. If you haven't gone to Facebook to become a member of the group, be sure and do that. Nurses March for Redonda Vaught. Because even if you can't be there in person, you could still be there in spirit. And we're also planning to do a lot going forward to keep the group active after the march in order to continue to bring awareness to issues that are facing our profession and we're going to be fighting for change. So definitely go and join the group. I also wanted to take a moment to remember Naomi Judd. As we're recording this, I just found out two days ago that she passed and it's it was really shocking. I live, I have grown up in the, the Nashville area and have always been a huge fan of the Judds. And so Naomi being a nurse, I've always just really admired her. She kept her nursing license active, you know, in, in spite of her success as a country music artist. And she was always so proud of the fact that she was a nurse. And I don't know exactly what happened, but according to her daughter, Winona, she died as a result of mental illness. So I'm not going to speculate. I just want to acknowledge her and her family and just take a moment to think about it. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. So with that, I want to introduce you to my guest host 
for this week, I have Nurse Alice, who's affectionately known as America's favorite nurse. And after getting to chat with her when we were preparing for the show, I can definitely understand why. And those of you who aren't familiar with her are about to figure it out as well, because we're going to get to feature her in our Good Nurse segment today. So be sure and stick around for that after the Bad Nurse story and hear all about all the cool and amazing things that she's accomplished in her nursing career. Welcome, Alice. Thank you so much, Tina, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's really great to have you. I'm excited to get to chat with you. Not only, I can't wait till the end of the show to be able to talk to you, and I want our listeners to hear all about all of the things that you've done, because I know I hear from a lot of nursing students and new nurses and other just nurses in general about what they can do with their nursing degree. You are the epitome of all the things, all the things you can do. So cannot wait to get to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. But before that, we have a really interesting bad nurse story. And it's actually, it's, we call it the bad nurse story. It's really, it's, it could be any, it doesn't have to be a nurse. And this week it is a doctor. Um, And it's a complicated it's really a complicated story. So I'm really excited to get to chat with you and get your perspective as an advanced practice nurse. I'm really curious as someone who prescribes I'm, in your, your say, I'm sure. And so I can't wait to dive into the story and get to talk about it finally. Yes, I definitely think that this week's case that we're going to be talking about is interesting. It's received a lot of press and hopefully we'll get to dissect it and you know, talk about all, you know, what was bad about it and if there are any silver linings or lessons learned in it. Yeah, absolutely. So having said that, this is the story of William Husell. Dr. Husell uh, was a physician that was employed at Mount Carmel Hospital in Ohio for five years. During his tenure there at Mount Carmel, he was nominated two times for Doctor of the Year. And then he actually snagged the award in 2014. So despite all of that, he would soon come under scrutiny of the hospital and investigators for questionable practices. And I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast are going, oh, yeah, I guess so, because it was really shocking. I remember when it happened, when it first happened, Alice, I remember talking about it because I was kind of reeling from all of the things that were was going on with Redonda Vaught at the time. And when this popped up, I was like, not another healthcare professional being arrested. I was so shocked. It was a little different perspective on this one. It's not exactly the same. You mentioned Redonda. I mean, all eyes are on that case right now. And then we're seeing this Dr. William Hustle. Her, is that Hustle? I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But, you know, we're seeing how things are have transpired in the court, what the verdicts are. And I think for many listeners, especially if you're not as familiar with the case, you can be, you know, really upset about what's happening and understandably so. And But whether it's a nurse or a physician, you know, we like to think that we're, we're trusted with people's lives and that we would do the right things. And for the most part, we do the right things. But I think as we unravel his case and talk about it, we're going to see where there might be a little bit of gray and also distinguish, you know, the court of public opinion, which we all have, differs significantly from the court of law. And I think there's, that's where when I, if we talk about any silver linings, it'll be lessons learned about why something resulted the way that we did. So it'll help prepare us if we ever find ourselves in a similar situation or understanding the next case that will unfortunately inevitably happen. Oh, yes. I definitely think this is a huge learning opportunity for nurses, pharmacists, everyone, 
physicians, nurse practitioners, everyone in healthcare that deals with medication administration, that deals with direct patient care. This is such an important case study to look at and for us to really understand how important it is to stand up for yourself, how important it is to voice, use your voice, and don't just let things get get by you. For those of you who aren't familiar, Dr. Husel was and, and I'm calling him Dr. Husel. He still has a medical doctorate. So I, I understand. He's, I think, I believe his license was suspended, but he's still a medical doctor. But, so he was accused of ordering larger doses of the painkiller fentanyl, which of course, most of us are, are familiar with that. It's been in the news a lot lately as street drugs being laced with it. But we use it a lot at the bedside, especially, well, oh, usually only in surgery or intensive care, to help with pain, to help with sedation. And I actually didn't understand this as much as well when I when it first came out because I wasn't an intensive care unit nurse at the time. So when this first happened, I was working in progressive care. We would never administer fentanyl and, and on PCU. It would not be appropriate. So it was hard for me. When it, came, when it first came out, I was just, my initial thought was, these patients are comfort care because that's exactly what was going on. That's exactly what happened. These patients in this hospital were at a, at a point where the providers were having conversations with family members that we have to have many times, unfortunately, in the hospital where you, you reach a point where you're doing things to the, the patient as opposed to doing something for them and to help them get better or to you're just not helping them anymore. So that's kind of what we were dealing with. And I remember thinking, wait, this is comfort measures. I, this goes against everything I've learned. I remember when I first became a nurse, how uncomfortable it was to give someone morphine who already had respiratory depression and was struggling to breathe. And it was so confusing to me, a patient put on comfort care. It seemed so counterintuitive and I was afraid to do it. I was so scared. I was going to literally kill the patient. And I realized, of course, once once you realize, you know, you're not killing the patient, you're actually, if anything, just making them more comfortable. And a lot of times it actually will extend their life because they can, they relax, they're able to breathe. And so you're helping them to have a good death. And I understood that most nurses learn that as they have to work in this capacity. So when I heard the story, I was immediately just floored, like, no, how can this be? Right. So Tina and I, you know, I just want to just interject. I mean, it, I think it's really important that, you know, that explanation was important and it's important to lay the background of it instead of just being so focused with the sound bites, the headlines that are out there. This physician was a palliative care physician and the, you know, he was charged with 14 counts of murder for, you know, writing high dose opioid orders. However, again, he was a palliative care physician. The patients that were um, a part of this were all patients who were either in organ failure, had internal bleeding, had cancer, had complications, were all on ventilators and had poor prognoses and were part of the palliative care service line. So I think it's, you know, when we're talking about patients, these weren't just your regular post-surgical patients, healthy otherwise, who were expected to leave the hospital. I think these it's important for the audience to know that these were patients who weren't expected to leave the hospital to return back to normal lives. So they were on the uh, journey of dying. So I think that's, you know, we don't like to talk about death and dying often, but it's important for people to know the population of patients that are were involved in this. So these people were very uncomfortable, you know, for some, you know, dare I say how to, this was a slow, agonizing, painful process. And 
doc, Dr. Herschel, Herschel? I hope I'm saying his name right. I just want to call him William. But, you know, as a palliative care doctor was writing these high prescription fentanyl orders, sometimes almost 10 times the amount of what we would give a, a typical patient. But again, considering the population, I think that's important for people to know. But, and, you know, as I'm sure Tina, you'll finish explaining to the listeners, this was a physician who was charged with, there were several cases that were brought up initially, but it, it boiled down to, he was charged with 14 cases of murder for, quote unquote, expediting their death because of his high dose opioid um, orders. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened. And that's why I think it's so shocking on the surface when you just look at that, what happened. Wait, there's comfort care patients. Why in the world would they be charging him uh, with murder of of people who were expected to die? They It was literally expected. And it was accepted, really, because they would not have, he would not have prescribed this medicine for these patients, it would not have been administered had the family not agreed to, quote, put their family member on comfort measures. So so this is where it gets sort of into some gray area, and it, it really gets complicated. So what I have, I want to be careful because, I mean, I, I do think this is complicated, and I want to be careful not to interject my opinion too much into it, maybe at the end, but it's hard. I mean, you're dealing with people real life people, family members who went through this horrible ordeal. Because here's the thing. He was prescribing huge doses of fentanyl, not your typical 50 micrograms, 100 microgram push. Most of the time in an ICU, and again, I did not understand this when it first happened back in 2019, when the case first broke, I did not understand that. When I transferred to ICU and started managing patients on fentanyl drips, and I would have a patient on a fentanyl drip and titrate that from 50 micrograms an hour to 100, 150. That's a lot different than, and maybe a push. You could do a push just to give them a little extra of 50, maybe 100 per every one to two hours or, or something like that. But then when I, when I read these numbers after I transferred to ICU, 400 micrograms 800 micrograms, 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl. And if you look at the story, what, what was happening in most of these cases is these patients are in the ICU. They are on a ventilator. They are in a situation that I would not want to be in, and that is you're, you're not able to live for very long off the ventilator. You are being kept alive by the machines and by these drips. I would not want to be in that situation. I would hate for my family to have to make this decision, but I would want them to make the decision to take me off the ventilator and keep me as comfortable as possible until I pass. So that's what was happening. He was, he and or another providers were having this conversation. And so the, the, here's the rub. According to, and I have to say according to the research that we've done, because this is not something I know firsthand. This is just research and articles that we've read and testimony from the trial. But the family members were told, there's your family member's going to die. This, you know, this patient's going to die. And we, this is the, the best thing for them, to take them off the ventilator and keep them comfortable. What they weren't told is how that was going to happen. And we don't typically do that. But to take someone off of a ventilator and immediately inject 
800 to 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl into their IV. I don't know, Alice, I, that feels... <laughs> well, yes, and I totally get you. And, and you know, as providers, as nurses and things, you know, we've given, some of us not, but especially if you've worked in IC, fentanyl is not foreign to you. If you work in the emergency room, fentanyl is not foreign to you. Those are the areas in which people will feel most comfortable. And I will say, outside of palliative care, working trauma, I've, that's where I've seen most of my fentanyl given. And it, dare I say, I've seen like 250 mic pushes given in a matter of 20, 30 minutes apart from each other, multiple times in a trauma. This is someone who's all broken bones, sticking out the skin, like they're screaming in agony. So I think that, you know, and fentanyl is also short acting for, for people who want to look, you know, after two hours, literally it's almost out, provided your organs are working, kidneys, everything. It's really a short living drug, but it has its place in medicine. It's high, And again, it's to alleviate pain. And if we go back and thinking about death and dying, We've all been that nurse, like, oh my gosh, I don't want to give this dose because I'm afraid that I'm going to push them into respiratory distress, their blood pressure dropping and things like that. But to put it in perspective, Tina, when you're in the ICU and you're on a ventilator, the machine is helping breathe for you. So even if we suppress respiration, there's a machine to help us breathe. And some of you might think, well, that's not right. Well, what's also not right is if you think on the flip side, you're prolonging the inevitable. And because you're afraid that you're going, the person's going to die on your watch, in a process and when they're already going to die, who's really wrong? Are we wrong for not wanting to keep the person comfortable? Because not that I've ever spoken to someone who's actually dying, because obviously I haven't, but I mean, you know, in that process, because usually they are not able to communicate. But from what we know of pathophysiology, people are, we've seen it, their third space, and we see the fluid seeping out of their skin. That fluid's also seeping into their lungs. They have internal bleeding, their belly's getting bigger. You can imagine the pressure, the inflammation, and how uncomfortable that could be. And, you know, I work cardiac. We've always said you're either going to drown or drop from a sudden cardiac arrest, or you're going to uh, drown from drowning inside with fluids filling in your alveoli. So you can imagine the agony there. Now, I'm not saying that he was that this was the best medicine, you know, giving a thousand mics at a time. However, I will say that I'm, there's the gray. I want to keep the person comfortable. I don't necessarily want to hasten the process per se, but I want them to be comfortable. And I think, Tina, that's where the court of public opinion and the court of law differ in that we have to step back for a second, because although we may have our own opinions in the court of law, he was charged with murder. And when we look at the definition of being charged with murder, but he was basically being charged of he was being charged with hastening a death. And I think some of also we know that, you know, people in law and, and you know, these prosecutors, these lawyers, they're not necessarily providers. They've not given these medications. So and not everyone is as familiar with the death and dying process. So there, you know, we need to remind them of what it's like. So, again, I'm. He was charged with murder, hastening the deaths of these people. Now, while, we, again, we've all been on that side, I don't want to, you know, lower the blood pressure, respiratory, depress them, but these are people who were intubated, death is inevitable, they're more than likely dying a painful death. It's problematic and hard for the patients, the family to watch. So, you know, where are we at? Where's the fine line of keeping comfortable and hastening death in someone who's inevitably dying? And you brought up a good point that the family maybe wasn't told what would happen, or maybe they're not prescribers, they're not clinicians where they don't know necessarily the mechanism of action or how quickly fentanyl works. But in this case, Dr. Hushel, I'm gonna get his name wrong every time, but his defense argued that it wasn't the fentanyl that hastened the death, it was the withdrawal of ventilator support that hastened the death. So I hate to be super technical, but again, guys, in the court of law, don't shoot me, shoot the messenger, or no, don't shoot the messenger, I'm the messenger. But what I'm saying is in the court of law, 
it's different. We have, you know, he's being charged with haste. When you, with murder, there's an intent. Did he intend to give this medication with the sole purpose of having them die, right? You know, die. And then also, was it the medication that did it if the death, if they were already in a very poor prognosis state? And then also we have to look at that in he in this, he did not act alone because he gave, he ordered a medication, but it goes to pharmacy, nurses give it. Like, so, and I think these are some of the idiosyncrasies of this case, which is why we also can't compare it to Redonda's case because it's like comparing apples to oranges. Now, both cases are extremely important, especially when it looks at healthcare, because although he was let off, you know, he was uh, acquitted of these charges just because he's acquitted doesn't necessarily mean that that was best medicine, that was best practice. But I think the jury, which deliberated for seven days on this, decided that the charges of murder, the intent to kill someone with the medication, he was not found guilty of that because in palliative care, again, with these prognoses, and also, again, with there being no written rule or regulation to say what a max dose is of fentanyl, you know, there were a lot of things that played a role in this case, which... I believe is why he was acquitted of these charges. But I get it. We're all like, if you give high doses of that, it'll respiratory depress someone. That is true in the traditional patient. I don't know if, if there's such a thing, but again, looking at palliative care, terminally ill, intubated patients, his defense argued it wasn't the medication, even though their disease process was leading to an inevitable death. It was the retraction of the ventilator in which the person, even if you maybe wouldn't have given him anything, they still wouldn't have been able to sustain adequate respirations to sustain life. Right. And I would imagine that's probably someone did a good job of explaining that to the jury. And that's why he was acquitted, because when it comes right down to it, it was clear to everyone that these patients were at end of life. That really wasn't in question. So it was a matter of, did he intend, as you said, to have them removed from the ventilator and then give them a high enough dosage of fentanyl to immediately cause their death, as opposed to let them lay there and try to keep them comfortable until they pass on their own. And I think that that's how the prosecutors looked at it. They looked at it like he he was just saying, take them off the ventilator and give them this much fentanyl in order to literally have them pass right away. And that's how the prosecutors were looking at it. And in their eyes... They saw that as murder because he was, according to them, hastening their death. Here's the thing. As you said, he is prescribing the medication. This is a little weird, too, because as we know, nurses override medications all the time. Unfortunately, it's what you know happened in, with that case in Nashville, especially in intensive care. So in a case like this where the you know Dr. Husel calls, calls the, the nurse right then and says, hey, I just had a conversation with this this patient's family member. I want you to take them, I want you to get respiratory, extubate them and give them this much fentanyl to keep them comfortable. Bam. And when they do that, like respiratory therapist is right there, let's extubate the patient. This is that, you know, you want, it's not necessary, you don't have to necessarily do it immediately, but at the same time, you don't want to wait either. You just got an order from a provider. So I it's, I don't know that would be considered an emergency and overriding, but that clearly happened in this case because they it wasn't always, the orders weren't always verified by pharmacy. The nurses would just go get the fentanyl, override it, administer it, then put the order in, scan it, and it would never have been approved by pharmacy. Now, in some of the cases, they were. 
And what happened in this particular case is a, a, a new farm. This went on for years at this right. hospital. Right. And a new pharmacist came along and went, what is this? I'm not approving this. And they were basically a whistleblower in this case. They stepped up and said, I'm not approving this. This is inappropriate. And there was an investigation done by the hospital. And the whole thing happened in a very strange way because it's like it was going on. Nurses were administering the fentanyl. There was some uncomfortable, according to a lot of different testimony from different people who work there. There were some uncomfortable feelings from some of the nurses that were doing this. Then there's this culture that's been created where this is what we do here. This is everybody. It's just normal. You take them off the ventilator, you give them the fentanyl, they go and that's it. Nobody has to, they're not suffering anymore. Then someone questions it and all of a sudden they look back and go, they've been doing this for years. So then the hospital's like, let's investigate this. Well, apparently more patients died after the investigation started. And then when the news media got a hold of that and they asked the CEO, he was like, no, there wasn't an investigation. I don't even know what you're talking about. And it was just a big mess. I agree. And, and I think also, Tina, like when they had the case, there were 53 witnesses for prosecution. Any of those nurses and you know healthcare folks from that particular hospital. And it is uncomfortable. And again, I know he was acquitted of this. And so all some people will say, oh, he was proven innocent. Well, maybe he was innocent of the intent to kill, but that doesn't mean it was good medicine. It's still very sloppy. I'm just going to go ahead and say that as a provider, one who prescribes, you know, there's a balance of keeping someone comfortable. And I'll share this as someone who had to withdraw life support when my mom was passing. They put her on a morphine drip, right? So perhaps what would have been a better situation in here is instead of giving a massive bolus to put the person on a, a drip. Now, obviously I've not had a chance to like really look through the court documents. I wasn't there to listen to everything. So, you know, pardon if I'm missing any part of what happened in this case, but I think if we, if there is, if we can say what everyone's goal was in this, it was to keep the, the patient comfortable as they were passing now, the methods in which we do that, I think that's where we vary on what was appropriate, what's not appropriate, and and good for the whistleblower, good for anyone who brings up a concern about safety, because we all should be looking at that with lenses. And I think many people have become complacent in an environment where it's like, oh, we always do that. That's how we do it here. And we get into patterns that aren't necessarily healthy or safe, but because that's the culture, people are worried about disrupting the process. And so, you know, as you mentioned, Tina, this new pharmacist had come along and to look at that, that's good. That's why we do need a new set of eyes looking at what we're doing periodically, just to make sure, although we all think we're doing the right thing, that we're really doing the right thing. Again, and, and if there is any silver lining in this whole debacle, it's that we're, we're talking about it. What's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and hopefully this case has, you know, sparked conversations across the nation, across the world about how do we handle things like this? You know, what is our process? Do we have policies? Do we have guardrails, especially for new people, you know, novice physicians, novice nurses, even CNAs, every, anyone who's there, because we all want to make sure we're doing the right thing and we're not hastening anyone's death, but we're also not slowing it down, causing someone to extend a very uncomfortable process. And then I'll say, also say, Tina, this gentleman had a great defense team behind him. He really had a great defense team behind him, which sometimes isn't the case 
with other medical cases. So, you know, they really pulled out all their resources to, you know, to defend him against the, you know, the charges. And again, I have to, even though some of us will say, well, he's guilty. He, that was too much. We all knew that we all know at at the bottom of our hearts that massive doses like that do respiratory distress, especially respiratory depress, even when you've taken off the ventilator. But again, this is where the court of public opinion and the court of law differ. He was being charged with murder. Did he prescribe those medications with the intent to kill someone? And I'm going to say, would I have given a 1,000? Would I have written that order? Absolutely not. I would have looked for maybe let's start them on a, on a you know, well beforehand, keep them comfortable. But if there are any visual signs of, you know, like, <gasps> like they're gas, starting to gasp for breath or looking very uncomfortable, have some PRNs, some boluses available in there to keep them visibly comfortable. Because even... If someone's visibly comfortable, they're probably still uncomfortable, especially in, in, you know, with as terminally ill as, you know, these folks were. It almost seems as though he maybe, and it's speculation on my part, but it almost seems as though maybe he wasn't real familiar with palliative medicine. I have, working on a progressive care unit and then working in intensive care, I've had a lot of patients who kind of reached a point that they the, the providers are just going, there isn't anything else we can do. And they had the conversation with the family or even the patient. Sometimes even, you know, the patients are sitting there on a massive amount of oxygen, either on a high flow, heated high flow vapotherm, maxed out. And we know the next step or a BiPAP and we know the next step is going to be intubation. And we are having the conversation with that patient even. And the patient's going, I don't want that. And then we just sort of slowly have this conversation. And eventually the patient or family, or sometimes both, say, this is it's too much. This is suffering. I don't want this. You know, and you have the conversation. Then what happens is the provider, almost always, every, and I've dealt with lots of different providers, not just palliative care, not just people that are specialized in palliative care, but just, you know, nurse practitioners that happen to be the person working at that time, or the intensivist, or the hospitalist, or whoever it is. And they will typically start off ordering morphine, Ativan, you know, every hour, a certain, maybe two to four milligrams of morphine, maybe a milligram or two of Ativan, those things. And just, and they'll say, they'll, I'm going to put these orders in. If you feel like, if you're giving this and you're feeling like it's not enough, you let me know. Or if you feel like you're having to give it, administer it too often and you feel like they need a drip, you let me know. Or sometimes they'll just go ahead and order a drip and then give you some PRN pushes that you can give in addition to that. But I mean, I've done that so many times and it's all, to me, it's such an honor to be able to go through that with the patient and the family because, you know, you take them off the ventilator. If they're on a ventilator, you take them off the ventilator. You start making them comfortable. I try to educate my family as much as possible so they know what to expect and let them know. If we see any discomfort whatsoever, we'll get more medicine. It's, a, you know, we're going we're gonna to work through this together. It's hard to imagine taking someone off the ventilator and then pushing like 10 times I've never given fentanyl for palliative. I've all I've always given morphine, Ativan, that sort of thing. So it's hard to imagine like giving ten to, a ten, ten times the dosage of morphine if I were to take somebody off the the ventilator and then push uh, twenty to twenty to forty milligrams of morphine. I mean, that doesn't even right. Like that's kind of what it is, it equates to what was happening in my mind. I mean, I, it's just so hard to imagine. 
but I don't know. I do believe that the intent was to keep them comfortable. I'm not, you know, it's just really hard to understand how, how this happened. I think so. And, you know, I, you know, I hate to say, look, we're on one side of it, right? We're not the actual patient. We're outsiders right. looking in. And I think one of the things, and again, having the experience of having taken my mother off of ventilator support, and I'll just be honest, it was such a, it was so painful for me and my family members to watch this process. And I think anyone can agree that if it were our loved one, we'd say, you know what, I don't want them to have any pain. You know, like I'm getting emotional about it, but you want to remove that. And, but we also have to understand, okay, I heard what you said. You don't want mama or grandma to be in pain. But so as a provider now, if you've heard that, we know that, you know, they're not going to walk out of this hospital. They're third spacing, pulmonary edema, like they're bleeding. We see these things. If we don't want them to be in pain. What does that mean? How much does medication does that give? Again, these aren't your standard ortho patients, surgical patients who we're expecting to walk out, give them a small dose or otherwise healthy, it'll have that same impact. So it's a balance. It's a balance. And, you know, I commend you, Tina, and for all the other nurses, you know, we're having these conversations with family members who are, you know, have been at the bedside. And unfortunately during pandemic, you know, not many of them could do that, but at the bedside, they're watching this process. They're you know, a little piece of them is dying too as they're watching this process. So I think this physician was, again, was trying to keep everyone comfortable. But again, and we know, I'm going to go ahead and say it, physicians aren't giving these medications. They're not standing at the bedside. They're not doing this work or labor and they're not watching what we're watching, which is why, again, as nurses, we're in an uproar like, oh my gosh, because we're there doing all this work and we're seeing all this. But I think there's a part of us where... This is a gray area in dealing with these patients. You know what? I don't think there's any perfect answer. What is the the best practice or fine balance with keeping someone comfortable and not allowing them to not have any pain? Unlike a surgical patient, we tell them, you know, we tell a surgical patient who's had a knee surgery, I'm not going to be able to remove all your pain. Let's try other measures and other comforts. I can't have this conversation with the person who's dying. So... No one wants them to be in pain. And from a provider who's not having to see the results, is not going to physically be at the bedside to see the results. I think it was it, that's what made it easy for him to just write these large doses. Like, And dare I say, like, don't bother me. I got to go see some other patients. Because you know, I've seen that too. Tina, I don't know about you, but you, like you said, you see providers who kind of are like, I've done everything I can. There's nothing else I can do. And they kind of, well, here's, you know, call me if you need me. But in the... You almost get this kind of air attitude from them. Like you don't, they don't really want you to call them though. They don't. So I think that high dose order, I'm going to go ahead and say, dare say, you know, is a little bit, it was messy. It's messy. And, but again, in a court of law, so let's bring it back. In a court of law, there is no, there are no laws or regulation as to what the max dose for fentanyl is, especially when you're, when it comes to, comes to someone who has prescriptive authority and is, you know, and is trained to make medical decisions which are beyond the general public. So I guess in a sense, like who is a judge to really say what is medically appropriate, not appropriate when you have a, a provider who's been through all the schooling and training? We just hope that they're going to do right. But, you know, again, whistleblower came in and I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. It's, you know, and I think sometimes the word whistleblower, people are like, oh, I don't want to be a whistleblower. Well, you know, we are, we're all here for safety, whatever you want to call that term, an advocate call it an advocate blower. I don't know. But, you know, I'm glad that this case came to light, that we were able to kind of analyze a practice. But, you know, he was acquitted of charges of murder. 
Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash goodness bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash goodness bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care, be sure and put dot care instead of dot com forward slash goodness bad nurse. It's May, and you know what that means. Nurses Week is coming up, and Echo loves their nurses so much that they decided to amplify Nurses Week and turn it into Nurses Month. They're celebrating nurses all month long to show their appreciation and support for our contributions to healthcare. So in honor of Nurses Month, they are giving away a grand prize of $1,000 toward a trip of your choice. They know that nurses are some of the hardest working people in healthcare, so they want to give us a chance to take some time to relax on them. First place will be a $1,000 gift card toward a trip of your choice. Second place is a $500 gift card towards a flight of your choice. Third through fifth place will be $50 spafinder.com gift cards. Submitters can also mention at Echo Health and hashtag Amplify Nurses in an Instagram post for a chance to win instant prizes throughout the month of May. Winners are going to be announced June 6th, 2022. You can submit to the sweepstakes at echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. You know, the amplification of Echo Core is something I've come to rely on every day that I work at the bedside. With 40 times amplification and active noise cancellation, the 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope is becoming the go-to stethoscope for nurses all all over the country. So go to echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. That's echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. I think he was acquitted because when they, when you really look at it, and I think they did the right thing, honestly, Alice, I don't think that this should have ever been brought criminally, personally. I think that it, it was investigated by the hospital as it should have been I do think he should have been disciplined because of it, because I don't I think it was so far outside of the norm of what what standard providers would do. And so if you look at if you look at all you take a 100 providers and ask them what dosage of fentanyl would you give to a patient that you were going to take off a ventilator and make comfort measures, I dare say how many of them would you think would say 400 micrograms, 800, I just, right. it's, uh, I don't know that you'd find any other, unless Dr. Husel was in that list of 100. Right. And I also want to point out that in the state, this happened in Ohio, correct? So there, when I was doing research, I found, I discovered there are 10 states that actually allow, I'm going to get this word I, uh, incorrect, but assisted, oh my gosh, 
I don't even want to make sure this is right, Tina. I don't hope you don't mind edit this out. But 10 states that allow for physician-assisted deaths in certain situations. And oh, I was going to say, I didn't think they were that. Were, are they? There are 10 states, actually. Until, I don't know if this is wrong, Tina, got to edit this out. But from my research, I saw that there were 10 states and two that could do so with court orders. And so, but this is not a state that allows that. So dare I say, maybe the terminology, there are 10 states that currently allow for death with dignity, two that require court order. But the, where this case happened, it's not, you know, it's it's not the case. But I, so I'm not sure... You know, I'm not sure where he studied, but, you know, we're always look, and I can't read his mind, but I imagine that in his specialty that he's reviewed different cases and studies and perhaps in his mind, this was appropriate based on something that he's read or seen before in a previous study. I'm hoping he wasn't just, you know, just acting recklessly without any you know, any information, but. This is interesting, Alice, because uh, now that we're talking about it, I looked it up and there is actually a law in the state of Ohio, euthanasia or, mer- or mercy killing or assisted suicide is not condoned or authorized by Ohio law, but death of a patient resulting from withholding life-sustaining treatment does not constitute suicide, murder, or any homicide offense for any purpose. So if you take them off the ventilator to withhold treatment, you're saying, I'm not, we're not going to, we're no longer going to treat this. It's the ventilator keeping them. It's what we're doing to them that's keeping them alive. So we're going to remove the ventilator. So you're withholding treatment. So then that death uh, is not going to be considered, you know, assisted suicide. It's not going to be considered homicide, murder, any, you know, any of those things. So and that as may, you were saying earlier, yes. if that's what, that's what they're arguing is that's what caused, that's what hastened the death, not Okay. Oh, well, see, there we go. So there was a piece of legislation that was, again, court of law, guys, is so different because there are some things where like, oh, my gosh, I would never do that. That's not right. But unfortunately, the law is so like so detailed, so tedious, so like. And again, just because he was acquitted of this doesn't necessarily mean that this is good medicine. It doesn't necessarily mean that. So I think that's all important for people to understand. And there were, I think, again, some loopholes in the laws or, you know, I don't want to say loopholes because do I think he intended to, you know, kill these people? No, they were already dying. I think he was trying to keep them comfortable. It's just the methodology in which he used is what we're all, you know, debating about. Was this appropriate? Was this not? And again, unless you're in an environment where you've really had to administer fentanyl or you, you know, you work in palliative care, you can see the gray in this area. Because some of you are going to listen to this like, oh my gosh, Nurse Alice is crazy. I can't believe she's saying that. But I've, again, as someone who's had to take my mother off of life support, as someone who's worked in trauma, and literally I've seen like young, healthy 20-year-olds who are so banged up, arms broken, like everything is like sticking out the body that's supposed to be in the body. We're giving IV pushes of 200 mics. Like we push it and then like 20, 30 minutes later, give another 200 push. So I've seen, you know, fairly large amounts of doses of uh, fentanyl given in a short amount of time, and it was appropriate considering the situation. So I think instead of applying this high doses of fentanyl to thinking like the whole general population, let's also dial back and think of which patients we were dealing with, what the death and dying process is like, thinking of the agony uh, for the patient by prolonging any type of death, and also thinking of the family members. But also we know that family members aren't also, the death and dying process isn't well explained to some of them because, you know, there were some family members in this case who were very upset. They're very upset about this as well. And they're entitled to be, but not but, and death and dying is a very highly charged emotional process. You're going to, they're going, 
again, as someone who's went through it, I'm very sensitive to everything. And if anything that could have possibly hastened the death of a loved one, when you want every every last moment with them, I can see why they are upset. I think some people, some of these family members, because I watched interviews with them, they were saying if it had just been explained to us, I'm not. They weren't even saying that they wouldn't have agreed to it, but they didn't understand what was about to happen, and they feel like they were sort of conned into it. They were told we're going to keep them comfortable, and then it, when they what they feel like what they in what re, the reality was. They were removed from the ventilator and then their death was hastened. That's how it felt to them once they found out what happened. And so uh, some of them said, you know, maybe we would have had a few more hours. Maybe they could have been removed from the ventilator and they could have been transferred to a palliative care floor where they're given enough morphine and maybe Ativan or something to keep them comfortable, but maybe they would still be arousable. Maybe I could talk to them. Maybe they didn't have to die immediately after being taken off. Maybe we could have had some time to have some closure, to say some final words. Even if I tell people this all the time, even if the patient is not able to open their eyes or communicate with you or respond in any way, you do not know that they are not able to. I've had so many patients who you thought there's no way they don't even know anything's going on in this world. And then they come off the ventilator and, and are awake and, and they're like, I remember hearing someone say this, this, and this. So I tell people that all the time, talk to them, talk to your loved one. They didn't, they were kind of robbed of this opportunity, I think is how they felt. And this is why patient education is so important. And although the provider is prescribing it, we like to think that they've talked to the patient about their options as they're supposed to, but really a lot of that defaults to us nurses. And I really want to empower nurses to, you know, don't feel like, oh, that's a conversation for the provider to have with the patient. Because let me tell you, it's not happening. Well, not all the time, but most of the time it's not happening. And, you know, really, like I like you say in that situation, I think people felt robbed or bamboozled or just like just cheated out of an opportunity because something wasn't explained to them. It's like signing some papers and not being told what all the fine print really says and you feel tricked. And so, you know, no one wants to lose a loved one. That experience is painful in and of itself. And also the guilt of having to to feel like you've had to make a decision to pull someone off of life support. That is, that's traumatizing. That's really not a decision anyone has to make. And then to think that if you agreed to a treatment that could have hastened that time, I think there's another layer of guilt that's added. But again, just a few moments of explaining what the death and dying process looks like and explaining that, yes, this medication is going to help take away their pain, but you know it does cause the breathing to slow down. It does cause the heart rate to slow down. And so that may very well, while keeping them comfortable, has the potential to slow down their breathing you know, to the point where they're no longer breathing, so especially since we've taken off the ventilator. But I think those are very uncomfortable conversation that n- not everyone feels comfortable having. And so... In the case of good nurse, bad nurse, is this a bad, you know, a bad provider? I think, I don't believe his intentions were to murder. I think his intentions were to keep people comfortable, but his methods are arguably aren't necessarily the process that I would have, I would have done myself. I would have liked to see more patient education in this, you know, making sure the family's really on board and knows what's happening. Maybe it's more of a, of a, a drip with some PR and boluses in place to have that conversation and to help the family really feel like a partner in, you know, even in this last final step of the plan of care. And I think families were robbed of the, of that opportunity. 
Yes, I think so too. You know, and in a just culture, we've been talking a lot about just culture lately, uh, because in a just culture, the, what would happen in that situation is when the hospital got sort of got wind of what was going on and, and it, it, it came to their attention, and they started investigating. They, to me, what should have happened is immediately he should have been I don't know, suspended. Let's investigate. Let's see what's going on. Why are these excessive doses being ordered? And there should have been education to happen. You know, we you have some you have a disciplinary process, and I think that a reasonable panel of healthcare professionals would have probably looked at that situation and said he should have known that those were excessive doses, and therefore he it, this warrants some discipline. Completely loses license. I don't know, but th- then it, there again, here we are in the criminal justice system instead of the where we should be, and that's analyzing the whole situation. Because now, look what's happened. I mean, you have all these nurses, you have pharmacists who have been drugged through this. Many have lost their license just because they carried out the order. And that's really frustrating to me. I I know they had to have been so conflicted. And it really makes me want just encourage nurses who are in this situation where you, something in your gut is going, ooh, this doesn't doesn't feel right. I mean, it's an order and not... The pharmacy verified it, and I, I guess I have to give it or, you know, but if something didn't feel right, there's a reason it doesn't feel right. Right. And I think it's important that in, you know, wherever environment that you work, there's a checks and balance system. And even if you have an inkling that something might not be right or you're questionable, or let's just say you just don't know, and this is your first time doing it, this is your, this is an opportunity to have a discussion with your charge nurse, with a manager, with someone else to just let me just check in to make sure that this is the standard of practice, that this is okay, because maybe this is something I'm not familiar with. And I know a lot of nurses are like, you know what, well, the doctor ordered it, I should go ahead and give it. And especially of our novice nurses who maybe don't have the experience or feel empowered to say something, you know, and there's bullying that happens in the hospital institutions. Let's, let me also bring that piece up. So you might not feel like you're in a position to, I don't want to use the word challenge, but to you know, question, question what's happening. And I think that is going to be our saving grace in any of this. You know, I want to work with people who will question things because I want, you know, that lets me know that they're thinking caps on, they've, they're not out on autopilot, but they're actively thinking about everything that's happening. And that's how we really create a, a safe environment. And you can't have quality if you don't have safety. And I think those are all important things to to talk about. But you're right. A lot of people were drug into this process which, you know, in light of paints the, also contributes to the climate of where we're at now. Things that were once medical malpractice lawsuits, things that were once handled by the hospital. Now, I think, you know, and I don't know what's happening. I don't know if this has always been the case, but it's more visual to the public, especially since now we're kind of coming out of pandemic. Hospitals are kind of like hands off, like, hey, I'm not in this kind of thing when here's the case. You know, this physician is also facing a lot of civil suits still coming. I think they've already settled $14 million worth of lawsuits. I imagine that people are coming after the hospital and the provider. Hospitals have this beautiful thing of not being criminally charged, but only handling it in civil law. And then they can do this non-disclosure agreement and no one ever hears about it. So although I'll say I just came back from a, a healthcare journalist conference, there is a way to find out about these things. But, you know, we and then but anyways, this is leaving providers kind of out in the open to criminal court cases. And I think we have led, you know, 
prosecutors and people in who work in the judicial system who don't understand health care, who've never provided care. And they're, you know, picking up cases that maybe shouldn't otherwise be in criminal court, but should really live in the medical malpractice suit, especially when you have medical boards, you have state nursing boards who are already handling or managing things with the licensed healthcare provider. Unfortunately, licenses are being suspended and the board investigates those things and makes their mayor the decision. But, you know, to end up in a criminal court of law, like you said, Tina, earlier, I'm not sure that this case should have landed in criminal court because I think this was more of something that required medical review to see appropriateness, especially again, when there's no regulations or law for the max dose of fentanyl, especially in this population. I think it could have been handled better, but the silver lining in this is that it's really put it in a spotlight for, you know, we as us as healthcare providers to learn from and discuss about our own practices, but also people, hopefully it's, you know, sparked a conversation with people about, you know, what's going on with pain medication and, you know, maybe what is palliative care, maybe spark some interest in those topics. But, you know, I'm not sure it should have landed in criminal court. Some will beg to argue with me and that's fine. I think we can all agree to disagree, but I think the one important thing is that we're all talking about it. I think that we're all talking about it and we're all in that discussion, hopefully going to come up with better practices, better processes, better ways to manage when things like come up in, you know, when we're caring for people. Yes, exactly. You know, there's a, a sort of an aside story to this that not a lot of people are reporting on. It's something that came out when this first happened and then when he was recently acquitted, which he was acquitted of all charges on April 20th in 2022. But back when he was in college, he actually got into some legal trouble because he set off a he made a pipe bomb and set it off in in a garbage can on his campus. So it's kind of when they did their I guess they did their background check to hire him. They only went back 10 years and it happened just maybe a, a couple of years shy of, of the 10 year mark. And so they didn't see that. And it, a lot of people were, were wondering, I remember when this happened at the time, like, well, if they had seen that, would they have hired him? I believe in rehabilitation. I believe in not holding people accountable for that. So that's how, that's my personal opinion. But there were some people that were just like, well, they never should have hired him. And I'm like, my goodness, if you don't hire people based on something that they did when they were in college, 20, 20 years, we're all in trouble, I feel like. I agree. So. I agree with you, <laughs> Tina. And then again, court of public opinion, court of law differs so much. So, you know, most employers don't do go back 10 years, um, unless you're looking for, for the government, then they do like the Department of Justice check where they're looking at everything. But, Kindergarten. <laughs> exactly. But then also you, you have to... Um, Think about it. Sometimes things happen and people will go through the expungement process where even felonies are stricken or removed or kind of silenced out of people's background checks because someone has demonstrated rehabilitation. They're a better person who I was 10, 12 years ago. Circumstances, things are different. I'm a better person today. Those type of things. So I want to caution people also to not be so judgmental about people's histories, especially if there's not been a pattern of such behavior. I know when cases come up like this, we're so quick to judge. We're so, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have not even taken the time to go back and review a lot of the details that we've shared on this. And so I'm hopeful that this conversation raises awareness and can help, you know, kind of to, many of us take off our blinders in this because as nurses, 
Um, and as leaders, not just at the bedside, but in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, wherever we, pra- wherever we practice prayer, play, or whatever you do, we're leaders. And I think one of the good characteristics of a leader is that they don't jump to conclusion based on very little evidence that they really sit back and they listen to both sides of the stories before they draw their conclusion. Because so many times I've seen situations where people just jump to conclusion based on a little bit of information, but let's be better. Let's, you know, no, we wouldn't want that to happen to us, right? There's always another side of that coin. So let's, this is good that I love that you do this. So we can actually kind of talk about both sides of this coin and then, you know, really be able to come to a conclusion like, was this, was he guilty, you know, by the court of law? No. In court of public opinion, some may still think so, but this is our opportunity to, you know, have discussions and dialogue about improving practice, policies and procedures. So none of us find ourselves in a situation like this or working with someone like this without a plan of how to resolve it. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, it is a really, really complicated case. There's so much. I really have gone back and forth a few times about my feelings about it. But I think where I've landed on this is that I have to be pretty firm in in the whole, in the court of not criminalizing healthcare professionals for making mistakes. And I believe this was a mistake. I think it was a pra- an error in practice that needed to be corrected. That's my opinion about it. And so I believe that we should not be criminalizing healthcare professionals for try, you know, doing going about doing their job and then you know making a mistake or making an error. That's my personal opinion. And I am fighting for that now. We are literally... Tr- trying to get legislation passed in the state of Tennessee that will protect healthcare workers. And I would love to see that legislation passed at a national level because I just, I believe so firmly in it. And the reason, you know, I had the prosecutors on. The prosecutors is a a podcast, a really popular true crime podcast. They are two prosecutors and they are fascinating to listen to. I love their true crime podcast. But they came on to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse to talk about the Redonda Vought case. And I love their perspective because they really, they were true. They were prosecutors. They were not, they were definitely not just like lobbing softballs. They were given their opinion and what they were saying is, you know, the they what they believed is that what Redonda did was wrong. It should it it was something that rose to the level of being criminal, of negligence, of you know, not to the point of reckless negligence or reckless homicide, but maybe just negligence. And what but what they said is just because you can prosecute something doesn't mean that you should. And so Apparently, if you just leave this into the hands of random district attorneys, then they, in the court of, and to, to me, in the process of doing their job, I believe can make the mistake of wrongfully prosecuting a situation like this. So I just think, I think that, you know, we're going to be fighting, I'm personally going to be fighting uh, to get legislation passed because I think it's making our already making our healthcare system even worse, if that is even possible, because it's causing nurses and other professionals, other healthcare professionals to say, it's not worth it to me. It's already hard enough. It's not worth it to worry about being arrested for making a mistake while I'm doing my job. I agree. And I mean, even before these cases, we've seen a lot of cases prosecuted that maybe doesn't necessarily didn't need to be prosecuted. I don't know what the process is for these 
district attorneys and prosecutors what makes them pick up a case and what doesn't, especially if you, like you said, you have situations that may rise to a possible criminal case, but you know, what makes them pick and choose their cases? I'm not really sure what that process is. I know there's been a lot of injustice with which cases are selected or which not. So I think that's definitely something that, you know, needs to be worked on. And I think we got to make sure we vote in the right people to help keep track of these things. But I just want to say that even though this physician was found uh, not guilty, I want, you know, I want people to not interpret that as this is good medicine, per se. I Like you said, I think that, you know, again, in the court of law, he was found, he was acquitted. But again, this is an opportunity for us to really talk with amongst ourselves as providers, as nurses, about best, you know, what's best practice and continue to work on that. And as long as we're working on improving the process, I'm hopeful that, you know, these prosecutors can see that we don't have ill will or negative intentions when we're trying to care for people. Are is are we always going to be perfect? Are we going to always get it right on the money? No. We know that there are a lot of medical errors and some do contribute to death, unfortunately, but it's never intentional. And as long as we could keep continuing to have discussions and take actions to improve the process, I'm hopeful that we won't see, hopeful, that we won't see these cases bring, you know, drug into criminal court uh, law. Yes, exactly. With graduation season already in motion, now is the time to plan for the next steps in your career. When I began my career, I remember feeling so vulnerable. That's why I recommend checking out the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program is tailored to support newly graduated nurses and ease that first-year anxiety. With benefits like continued education, including state-of-the-art simulation training, student loan assistance and tuition reimbursement, endless career growth opportunities, and more. Plus, HCA Healthcare gives you the opportunity to advance your career in one of the largest healthcare systems in the country, and you'll have support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Don't Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Well, I guess we talked that about as <laughs> about that as much, almost as much as we could. I'm glad. I'm so glad to get to finally just kind of speak out about it and sort of put it to rest. But I am really excited to get to talk now in our good nurse segment about you, Alice. And just what I would love to do is just to kind of talk about all of the different types of jobs. You were telling me this before when we were kind of doing show prep and talking uh, about this show. Tell our listeners about you know, your career and where, how you've progressed and the different types of nursing that you've done. 
Okay, so, and let me just say this spans over 24 years. I have literally been a nurse for 24 years. I know people look at me and they don't look, they're like, what? You've been a nurse for 24 years, you look 24. I'll, I thank you, I'll receive those compliments. But I started, you know, right out of high school, I was a CNA, did an LVN program right out of high school. And I had a, you know, I was working and going to school simultaneously. So I didn't go straight to a bachelor's program. I did, you know, I was a CNA, then I became an LVN, then I became an RN with associate's degree, then RN with a bachelor's degree. And then I became a clinical nurse specialist, got my master's in uh, nursing education and clinical nurse specialist. So I did that for several years. And then most recently, the last few years, I went back and got a post-master's as a nurse practitioner. And then so along the way, I was always working, always going to school. So I feel for everyone who's in school and working, I know it's hard, but it's doable. And then also as if, I don't know where people say, why did you find the time to do all this? I think when you're passionate about something, you really enjoy it. You find the time. And during that time, I always found some time to volunteer. I loved cardiac. Cardiac was my thing. It stems from my dad. My dad died of a massive heart attack in a hospital in in an emergency room. I won't necessarily get into the details of that, but I didn't feel like he got the best care possible. He didn't get the best care even leading up to that event. So I decided that I was going to be the best cardiac nurse in the world. So I threw myself into anything cardiac. And that meant a lot of volunteering with the American Heart Association. So I had become a spokesperson for them. I was doing education campaigns, teaching on the local, regional and national level. I even got to go to the White House and join, be a part of their committee for preventative cardiovascular diseases during Obama's administration. So I was very involved. I even was involved with going to my state capitol with tobacco tax you know, laws, smoking laws, all these things. I would have never imagined myself get, you know, going to speak about legislation and talking to, you know, politicians about why they should, you know, all things about sugary beverages and all of these things. But I was doing that with the American Heart Association in an effort to promote heart healthy lives, right? To protect students and people from you know, unnecessary exposure to smoke, sugar, and all those things. But so I've always been a volunteer working to help educate uh, people. And my mantra is, I like to talk to people before they become my patients. So I think a collaboration of being inspired by my dad, doing this community work and still going to school, I just kind of set off to want to be this educator because by the time you come and talk to me in the hospital, you're in the ER, you're in the ICU, something's already gone wrong. I wanted to kind of get on the preventative side which is also why I went back to become a nurse, a family nurse practitioner to kind of close that circle. But something else that I also never found myself doing was being a contributor on television. So I'm a medical contributor for NBC here in Los Angeles. And I kind of, it started with me doing, you know, my community service with the American Heart Association. They asked me to do a little radio. They asked me to do like how to be heart healthy. And that kind of spiraled into radio, some blogging, and then ultimately on television. So I've been on a lot of national programs from Dr. Oz, Dr. Drew, the doctors, to various news stations like CNN, ABC, MSN, TV One, BBC, but always talking about health, medical stories that are breaking to help educate people so they know what this means, what it means and what it means for them and what they can do. So empowering people to take ownership in their health and to be able to have better conversations with their providers. So I I don't know how all of this came to be. It was kind of like the perfect storm. Things were happening here, happening here, and it kind of all came together. And so fast forward to today, I'm, I'm a nurse practitioner. And so I do see patients. And then I also wear this 
media hat of being a medical contributor on television. And I'll say for the last two years, I've literally almost been on television every day, walking people through the pandemic. And while I thought I was just making an impact here in Los Angeles, these stories were getting national being shared amongst different affiliates and shared nationally. So I'm really proud and happy to be a nurse who is hopefully modeling to the viewers that nurses, we can do so much. I mean, I was sharing stories HIPAA compliant of what was happening at the front lines, what people needed to know about COVID, the vaccine, how to protect themselves to different studies coming down the pipeline and very proud that I was a nurse because historically we've always seen physicians doing this. And now to be a nurse, to get to do that, I was very honored and just ecstatic that I've been able to do all the work that I've got to do. I mean, because it's fun. I love it. I couldn't think of doing anything else. Well, and I'm really proud of you for doing that too, because, you know, it hasn't been that long ago that there was a, I refuse to say her name because I don't want to give her any extra, not that she needs my, that's not going to matter. But anyway, there was a pretty prominent physician who has a, has a, a large, like a very popular TV show and YouTube channel. And she actually kind of came out and said something sort of derogatory about a an article that featured a nurse as an expert. And she basically just made the statement, well, I don't know why they wouldn't have talked to a physician. Why would you talk? Why wouldn't you go to, why would you ask a nurse? Why wouldn't you ask a physician? And then she doubled down on that after when she got all this backlash and everybody gets so upset about it. Like obviously nurses are going, excuse me, I, why would you say that? And basically she kind of doubled down on it and said, you know, I didn't mean anything against nurses, but why wouldn't you go to the person that has the most knowledge of, uh, about a topic? And I just want to go, just because you have a medical degree doesn't mean you have the most knowledge about something. It, it's You can have a nursing degree and have and research something extensively and understand it frontwards, backwards, and every other way. And you could have a medical degree and maybe not um, have researched it. Maybe you're not up on the latest evidence-based practice. So... That was a really frustrating thing for me to see. And I love that you're out front representing us as nur- as nurses and you're being legitimized that way. You're being put forward as an expert and you're in the field of medicine. I just not like, oh, nurses hold people's hands and what we do is just, you know, hold your hand and clean you up. And yes, there are nurses that do that. And yes, that is part of my job and I will continue to do that. And I love that part of my job. But there's so much more to it. And I love that you're representing that for us. Thank you. I So let me tell you, when I started this, when I started doing media several, I think I started 12 years ago. There were times, and at that time, I was a cardiac clinical nurse specialist. I, you couldn't tell me anything about cardiology that I didn't know. Even cardiologists knew that, okay, I know she's not a physician. However, Alice knows her shit. So like, but I remember being trumped sometimes on certain cardiac issues by a physician because, oh, he's a physician. Alice, he's a physician. And and I would look at the f- provider and they're like, OBGYN. And I was, I would feel like, <sighs> but it was the title. So I, I think people felt like there was this hierarchy that if they're a physician, they know everything. Now I love working with physicians and we have some that are very knowledgeable. We also have some that are 
not knowledgeable. And many of us know, especially if you're a, a tertiary academic center and you're teaching residents coming in, who's teaching the residents? I mean, I know they go to schooling, but they learn a lot from the nurses. You know, the bedside mannerisms, what does whatever they learn in their textbook in their lab really look like at the bedside? What are bedside mannerisms? And because I think that's also an important part. You can be very book smart. And we know this, and I'll just speak to nurses. We know that sometimes, you know, there can be a nurse that has all the alphabet soup behind their name. And, you know, that, that just shows, tells me that while those things are important, that they went to school and they got the certification, doesn't necessarily mean that they're the content expert in someone. You really have to look at someone's experience and talk to them. And then are they approachable? Do they have the patience to educate? Because we've all had those preceptors. They've been, you know, great nurses. They've been nurses for a long time, but they're not the person you want precepting because they're not they don't make, you're, they're not approachable. Like, so I think there's a, a complement of both things. And I think nurses as the most trusted profession is one of the reasons why I've been able to stick around and do this for as long as I have is because every time I'm on television, I do make it, a, you know, I'm always represented as a nurse. I've never been mistaken as a physician. And if they do, I correct them because I really want people to know that I'm a nurse. But yes, I am, you know, I've, as a as an APN for several years, as an NPN clinical nurse specialist, I've really, I've earned and I've worked and I've seen many of the things I'm talking about. I'm not just, you know, talking out the side of my neck or anything like that, but I also have the language, the compassion to talk to people so it's, so they can digest it. We've seen providers who come in who use very high level words. They don't incorporate health literacy. They're very, you know, flat affects don't seem to communicate the compassion because they're only with the patient for 10 minutes and they're off to the next room. So I've taken all of those things and I hope I try my best to convey that on televisions so people can feel that I'm not wagging my finger at them for something that they didn't do or didn't know, but I'm empowering them with information, making it very non-threatening and giving them practical tips that they can do. So I try my best to do that. And I think that's one of the things that separates nurses from physicians because we are at the bedside. Yes, I'm holding your hand and caring for you, but I'm also very knowledgeable about the medications that I'm giving. You know, I'm doing an assessment. I'm alerting the physician to changes in your condition that then will warrant the orders that they're going to order. So, you know, we're really on it. And I think we're very capable of, and we are experts within our own respects. We are experts. And especially to teach, and I say like this, we're licensed healthcare professionals. So we're licensed for a reason. This is an everyday common knowledge. And so to have the opportunity to educate the public, we do this already. We do patient education already. So just to do it on a different platform is an honor. But to speak to that provider who said, I don't know why you'd go to your provide, why you would talk to a physician. Well, maybe I feel more comfortable talking to a nurse. Maybe a nurse is less, makes me, doesn't intimidate me. Maybe the nurse knows just as much about what I'm asking. And then, you know, again, as an APN, if there's something that's out of my scope or out of my realm of what I know, I always say, you know, but if you have specific questions about your case, please make sure you talk to your healthcare provider. I don't say physician. I don't say doctor. I say your healthcare provider. So, because I want to leave that can, that, you know, can of worms open for people to talk to their nurse, talk to their nurse practitioner, talk to their nurse midwife, talk to, you know, the CRNA or whoever that is, or talk to their doctor. Um, about what's going on. But we are, nurses are experts. We are experts. And I want people to, to, you know, it might feel a little bit like an imposter syndrome for some for some of us, but you are. You are a licensed healthcare professional. You know, you're licensed to care for people. So you know something, you know something. Yeah. And use that, use your 
knowledge that you gained in nursing school, use the knowledge that you're gaining every day at the bedside, you know, administering these medications and watching the response that happens, the physiological response that happens and the side effects that happen and all of the things, right. And you, and talking to your patients, you learn so much. I learn so much. I and, and talking to providers, like uh, and people that come along, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians that, that come along as I'm caring for their patient and they order something I love, I will always say, oh, why are you ordering? I've never seen that ordered before for this. What's going on? What is the, why would you order this and not this? And sometimes the answer is, it's just what I prefer. And sometimes it's, there's a reason. Well, recently had a patient who has been diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension and for me, working in CVICU, I know how serious that is. I've seen many patients uh, who have been had to be put on comfort measures because of that diagnosis and the later stages of it. And one thing I didn't see I, was that this patient wasn't on Sedanofil, and I it's some I had that's kind of what I had experienced that people get put on Sedanofil. And there's a, there's another one too that an, or, an oral one that's given, but I didn't see either of them, and so I questioned that the provider, like, so she's not on anything for her pulmonary hypertension. And what this provider told me was that what they found out is uh, patients who have been diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension that is secondary to COPD don't actually respond to those uh, medications. And I, I was just like, well, there you go. I just learned something. You know, it's these conversations are how I learn things, how we all learn things, you know, providers learn from each other. Same way, you know, calling and asking, you know, have you had this before? Have you seen this before? How do you handle, how would you handle this getting a second opinion? So yeah, absolutely. I see myself as an expert of source. If it's something that I've done enough and I've studied, I study, I come home and I look up things that I just saw and I watch videos and look up what's the latest evidence-based practice about this or that, nursing interventions. Are, are we supposed to be using sterile water now? Are we not in, a, in an NG tube? All these things, I that stuff goes through my head all the time. Like I want to know, I want to be doing whatever I'm supposed to be doing. So I really appreciate you for what you're doing and how you're representing nursing. I'm really proud of you. And I'm really... I, Love that you came on the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I thank you for having this show because I think it's really good to kind of talk through these things because where else are we going to talk about these type of cases and what's happening? And so it's an opportunity for all of us to kind of learn something new. And I want to challenge people to kind of be open-minded when we're having these conversations. I know some people feel very strongly about certain things, but just keeping an open mind. And again, as a a characteristic of a good leader is someone who's going to keep an open mind, listen to both sides of the story, and then come to a decision or a judgment. Because if we don't do that, we might be shortchanging ourselves from lessons learned. And also, thank you for honoring me and allowing me to be the good nurse for this episode. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I I literally love, love, love what I do. And it's just, you know, and I want to encourage people who are entering into the nursing profession or considering it to not lose hope in, sight, in light of all of the things that have happened with the pandemic and, you know, talking about capping pay and, you know, work conditions. You know, we need more people. We need good people to enter the profession to help us be the change that we want to see. And so I don't want anyone to get discouraged. My reason for wanting to become a nurse is because I wanted to help people. I wanted, you know, I wanted to help people live better lives. And I have my personal why again, like my, like I said with my dad, but we just need more people like that. And we welcome, we welcome new nurses. 
I mean, if you're a nurse who's also feeling burnt out, hold on, hang in there. There are other ways to be a nurse. It doesn't necessarily always have to be at the bedside. Maybe you take a break, maybe go to a new specialty, but hold on. We really need to rally and help each other. We are the largest segment of the healthcare workforce. And I like to say that's because we're the best. So hang in there. And, you know, if I can be of help to anyone, I'm always happy to help Tina. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll remind everybody where they can find you, Alice. Well, I'm on all things social at Ask Nurse Alice. Uh, I made it easy for everyone. Uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all of those things, I'm there. And if you message me, I, I definitely will message you back. And I also have a website, Ask Nurse Alice. I also, too, have a podcast called Ask Nurse Alice. It's brought to you by nurse.org. I'm also the chief nursing officer over there, which is also another position that I never imagined was possible as a nurse. But guys, there's so many different things you can do in nursing. I promise there are. But yeah, social media, website, and on the podcast. And again, you know, it, oh, and if you want to email me, you can email me at info at Ask Nurse Alice, and I'm happy to respond to you. I want to encourage people, be a resource. If I don't know the answer, I'll help you get to the answer. I'll send you resources. So thanks so much, Tina, for having me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So happy to have you here on the show. And you guys know that you can email me at Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com, and GoodNurseBadNurse.com is our website. We're on social media also at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. 